Hello and welcome to Behind the Bearcat. This is the podcast where the Northwest Missouri State University Career Services Office chats with Northwest faculty, staff, students, alumni, and friends to hear about their career journeys, how they got to where they are, and how they became Bearcats. I'm Northwest Internship Coordinator Travis Klein. And I'm Hannah Christian, Director of Career Services here at Northwest. And on today's podcast, big drum roll, big, big applause, we have... Matt Baker, Vice President of Student Affairs here at Northwest. Welcome. Welcome, Matt. All right. So we really want to hear, well, we'll just start at the beginning. How did you find your way to Northwest for the very first time? I went to a, I was graduating from Kansas State University. I'd been a resident assistant in their residential life department. Um, I went to a placement exchange in Oshkosh, Wisconsin in the early March of 1993. Um, And um, had several job interviews there and throughout between March and May, did a couple interviews here and there. But uh, right as I was graduating from K-State, I had a job offer to become a hall director here at Northwest. And so August 1st, 1993, I became a hall director at uh, North Complex, um, air conditioned unimproved. Likely much the same today. <laughs> exactly. I uh, moved there in August of 1993. And for the most part, I've been at Northwest. I did leave for two years after three years as a hall director and went to the University of Arkansas to get a master's in higher ed administration. Uh, by that time, I was married and um, did a nationwide job. There a lot of job offers coming out of my grad program, but the best job I found was, was at Northwest. And so came back in the fall of 90, actually in the summer of 1998. Um, and then I've accidentally stayed for the last 24 years. Did several roles within residential life. Uh, coordinator, assistant director, director, and became the dean of students for a few years. And then in the summer of 2011, became uh, the vice president of student affairs. And I assume when you went to college, you didn't start out planning to work at a university. I don't think any of us planned to do that. So what was your actual major when you went to college? And what were those initial career plans that you had? No such thing as initial plans for me. I had a shirt at that point in my life called Lifestyles of the Young and Aimless. uh, And I wore it proudly. I went through my freshman year of college as an undecided major. I went through my sophomore fall semester as an undecided major. And in spring of my sophomore year, my advisor said, you need to choose a major. And I said, I don't really know what I want to major in. I don't know what I want to do. And he said, uh, well, you're closest to a psychology degree. So that day I became a psychology major and I graduated in four years. And that's how that happened. It It was not really as much a choice as a uh, path of least resistance for me at, at that moment. And so I did apply in the corporate world as I was graduating from K-State. There was this one company. Um, I, I do have a pilot's license and I do fly. And there was this company that was just starting up in the Lenexa, Kansas, in the Kansas City suburb in the industrial park there. They were doing something with satellites. It was called Jarmin, Jar Garmin, Garmin. It was called Garmin. I didn't, <laughs> it was a fly-by-night operation. I didn't think I probably wanted to work someplace like that, working with airplanes. So I decided to get into the helping professions and student affairs. So it wasn't a decision as much as it was a what's next. It wasn't until the middle of my third year as a hall director that I realized, no, this is what I want to do. Student affairs is the path for me. There is, uh, I get to do lots of different things and have lots of opportunities, both um, with students, but also in administration and, and practice a whole lot of different skills and skill sets. So it was during that third year of my hall director role that I decided I did want to go get a master's degree in higher ed. And so that was January of 96. And in August of 96, I was at the University of Arkansas working on a master's degree. I'm interested to hear about your pilot's license. 
Where, how did that come about? Part of the benefit of being me is I'm the luckiest guy in the world. And so, it, it, you know, it's a good gig if you can get it. I grew up in Topeka, Kansas, and uh, my house happened to be near uh, one of the local airports. And so we had a big lawn to mow. And so I'd be on the riding lawnmower, you know, from the time I was about 10. And I just watched planes go by. And I was excited about that. I was a little bit younger than my aunt. Um, in, the, in the mid-70s, got her pilot's license and took us for a ride in a little Cessna 152, a little two-seater. Um, but then throughout my childhood, I watched these planes every Saturday or all summer long when I was mowing. And in Topeka, there's a group called Air Explorers, um, and they actually help kids get their pilot's license. And so the, the agreement was you went to the airport at 8 o'clock every Saturday morning, and you went to ground school, and then you stayed and watched airplanes to make money for the Explorer post. And that helped subsidize the flying lessons. And so really learned a lot about work ethic, learned a lot about perseverance. Um, we sold concessions at air shows and railroad days and different craft fairs to try to make money to subsidize flying. And so from the time I was about 15, took pilot's license lessons. And then uh, during the first couple of weeks of my freshman year of college, I went back to Topeka and took my check ride and got that license. I was very, very, remember that part about I'm the luckiest guy in the world. A couple of years after I got my license, I took my dad flying a couple of times and he decided he liked flying as well. And he, he got his license. So we've been able to fly together off and on over the last 35 years or so. And it really has kind of become my hobby. You know, I don't have a lot of hobbies, but that's the one that I do have. And it allows me to, it's really not that much faster to fly in a small airplane to get to your destination, but it does force you to focus and not, when you're flying, you need to focus on flying and the work stress or the family stress. It's nice to get away and just do something completely different. Um, and I've been extremely fortunate. I've been able to do that for the last 35-ish years. And it literally changes your perspective on things. I mean, you can't help but have a different perspective when you're up there. Yeah. And, you know, flying is like a lot of hobbies and a lot of things in life. When you get your license, they tell you, um, the instructors, the checkride examiner, all tell you, um, that it's a license to learn. Just because you get a license doesn't mean you're the safest pilot in the history of the world. It means you're, you're safe enough to get up and get back down. And I can't tell you how much I've, I've learned and come to understand three years after I got my license, five years, 10 years, and even 20, 25 years, I learned something new. Even sometimes the way you read instruments and how you interpret them, you know, you have what, you're, what would be called trend in instruments or data instruments. You know, this instrument says that you're descending you know, the vertical speed indicator. This one says you're at 4,000 feet. So one tells you the data, I'm at 4,000 feet. The other one tells you you're descending. Well, that happens a lot even in the work world, right? Well, what's the trend? What's the data? You know, and what's the impact of that? So um, it changes your perspective. It forces you to focus. And part of it is you, you always want to be in a situation that you can fix any problem or get out of any situation. I've learned over the years that it's always better to be on the ground wishing you were in the air than in the air wishing you were on the ground. And I think that's true in life and some of the problems we solve at the university. There's things you can control and things you can't, but you've got to deal with the facts as they exist, not as you wish they were. I think that comes from that critical thinking that is developed over, you know, a thousand hours plus of flying in 30 years is it is what it is. And what are you going to do about it becomes sort of that next, that next lever of, if that big fan in the front of the plane stops, I know I'm going to start sweating, but I got to figure out what we're going to do. You know, that's sort of a metaphor for life. So you mentioned you were in your third year as a hall director when you decided higher ed was for you. Was there something that happened during that time or just kind of a slow kind of evolution of, I kind of like this work? What was it that caused you to realize 
this is what it is for me. Because I think when we work with students, especially ones who are trying to figure out their career, they're really kind of wanting that moment to happen. And it, it seems like it happens at different points for everybody. So what was it for you when it was like, this is what I do want to do? A couple things probably happened. One was I, I found out I was pretty good at it. I didn't know when I started if I was going to be good at it at all. So I, I had success. We had uh, accolades as the Hall of the Year for a couple of years. I had a very high satisfaction rate with the, the students and the staff in the building. I had a you know, high retention rate to people coming back to live in the building. And so I found that I was pretty good at it. But I think the thing that I liked the most about it was the variety that a job like that brings. You know, you have a little bit of counseling, not in the clinical sense, but in the supporting students on a great day or a bad day. There's a little bit of budget work. There's a little bit of facilities work. There's a little bit of crisis management. There's a little bit of empathy. There's a little bit of um, relationships across campus and problem solving. And so uh, student affairs work generally is not to, oh, I don't quite know the right word. Student affairs work isn't the same stuff every day. Every day, it is something different. Um, Actually, every hour, it's something different. And work with a wide variety of people from a wide variety of backgrounds. I think that myself and, and those that work in student affairs probably have the biggest breadth of interactions across campus. We work with financial aid, we work with career services, we work with student success, we work with facilities, we work with finance, we work with university police, grounds, landscape, um, you know, the athletic department, the academic departments. And so student affairs work for me has been powerful that I get to touch lots of different parts of campus and experience, and it's never the same day twice. And that keeps it fresh and it keeps me from getting bored. And it's not just counting widgets. It's trying to find new ways to solve problems. And those problems evolve minimally every year, but sometimes every week or even every day. But um, So the, the problem-solving skills that are required keep it fun and fresh about 80% of the time. About 20% it's exhausting. But, but that to me is what drew me to student affairs was, um, especially early, you know, back 25 years ago or so. There's a lot of opportunity. You can go into orientation, you can go into career services, enrollment management, housing, conduct, leadership, campus recreation, equity, wellness, prevention. I mean, there's a lot of ways to involve and improve a student experience. Um, and so even if, if you get bored in one aspect of it, there's about 19 other aspects that you can jump into and have other ways to do it. And so that's been rewarding for me. Let's go back to this legendary placement exchange, right? So what can you, what is that? And how did you, you know, how did you approach that? In the residential life field, you know, these have been around for 50 years where most campuses have two or three or four hall director positions open every year. It's a job that somebody takes for one or two or three years. Um, Some larger schools have graduate assistants. And so somebody had the bright idea in the early to mid 70s, you know, we have this empty residence hall. Let's bring all these schools that are looking for grads and young professionals and put them in a room and then we'll bring all these candidates and they can sit in the lounge and then go in and do a 30 minute interview. So you can interview with 20 schools in two and a half days. You know, Zoom did not exist. You know, now we can just interview with Zoom. But back then, maybe a phone interview, but nobody could afford to travel to five different campuses to see if, it, if they liked the, if there was a connection there. And so, I think they still do the Oshkosh Placement Exchange the first week of every March. And, and ACPA and other national conferences also do this now. Uh, but that was really the big one for ResLife when there would be 150 to 200 employee employers with, you know, five jobs each. And so it was a, you, know, you could stay at the local Super 8 that may or may not have hot water. And, you know, for $49 a night because that's what you could afford as an undergrad. And you'd stay with three of your friends. 
but you get a chance to interview. I mean, it was really um, speed dating, or, you know, speed networking as we do on our campus now. It was a lot like that. Um, and so you could go through and decide quickly, yeah, that school doesn't seem like a fit, or I'd like to learn more about that. And the schools could do the same with candidates. And it was a pretty efficient way to go through that, literally from a Thursday morning till a Sunday afternoon. What was your sort of, I'm going to call it philosophy, but what was your approach to interviewing at that point? Like, I'm Matt Baker, and here's how I'm going to do things. So Matt Baker in the spring of 1993 is not the same as Matt Baker in the spring of 2022. So um, if I was really honest, and if I'm too honest, we can always edit this. But um, I was praying for a job. I will do anything if I can get a job and not live in my mom's basement. Um, so uh, Matt Baker today would interview very, very differently than coming out of college, insecure, not sure what the next step. I think I want to be a hall director. Can I do that? I don't know. So if I were talking to current seniors or students who are going to graduate in the next year, I would tell them take every opportunity to practice interviewing, seeking out to understand their strengths and lean into those strengths. I think I, one of the reasons I love student affairs work is I get to help students prepare for those next steps. And I was not the, uh, the guy with 27 interviews scheduled and four job offers. I was the guy who was like, yeah, I think he could be better than nothing. Uh, I think that was my early career move was just to get a job. You know, I, I talk to graduating students, you know, all the time now. The first job is the hardest to get. Um, two things that happen after that is typically you don't have to give that job up before you go get another one. And two, you start finding out what you love and what you hate. And so that first job, I, I would want every student recognize their strengths as they exist. Don't try to conform to what you think the interviewer wants. Be who you are because one of two things will happen. One is they're going to love who you are and they're going to hire you and it's going to be a great fit. Or two, you're going to pretend you're somebody you're not. You're going to get into the job and it's going to go south quickly. It's going to be a really bad fit very quickly and it's going to be even more uncomfortable than graduating without a degree and living in your mom's space. So uh, be your authentic self and things will work out. Maybe not exactly how you thought, but most people will look back and think, man, that was still worth it. Even it wasn't what I expected, but I wouldn't change it. And I think that's a little bit of uh, maybe risk, having some risk tolerance and a little bit of faith. I think those those things help students recognize that the path will come, just be true to who you are, and it will all work. One of the things that's kind of been a theme this season for us is how COVID kind of changed your work. So I would imagine student affairs was directly impacted by COVID and kind of what we've the new normal we've all kind of changed to. So how how is student affairs? You know, you've been in a game for a long time. So how how did COVID kind of change up what you're doing, or make it better, or make it worse, or how did, how did it change it? You know, COVID is not a point in time; it's an evolution over time. So I don't remember the exact date, but March. 15th or so 2020 uh, was hair on fire week, right? Like, you know, we were on spring break, which probably helped us in the long run. We paused for a week and said, hey, don't come back. We're going to figure stuff out. And then about a week later, we said, hey, we're done for the semester. You know, there's some stuff that on the outside doesn't seem like a big deal, but operationally is a big deal. You know, we have agreements with our meal plan providers, with Aramark. You know, they need to know what they're supposed to do. Northwest has a, a long history of student engagement and development through co-curricular experiences, whether it's student organizations or Greek life or club sports or campus recreation. And we felt compelled, you know, we collected student fees for them by some level of service to those students. And so whether it was dining and housing and figuring out, we didn't know what COVID meant. You know, we didn't know how severe it was. We didn't know if it was the bubonic plague or the flu. And, and 
the whole conversation about is it safe to check out a student's room? Are we putting the staff in danger? Is the facility staff going to danger if they go clean a room? How do we know if the virus is airborne in the room or not? And those seem easy two years later, but at the moment, we're trying to make decisions what's around the corner. But what I was most proud of is we stepped up. You know, we started that spring and summer. We did um, student activities council events on Zoom for the first time. We had a comedian or two. We had different musical guests on Zoom that students could participate in. Our campus rec team had um, fitness programs, you know, 15-minute Twitter fitness programs that people who were sheltering in place could get some exercise wherever they were living. And, you know, I was so impressed with our team for stepping up and figuring out how to do something. Maybe it wasn't exactly what we would do, but it was something. And then we came back in the fall of 20. And again, we know engagement and connection are, are cornerstones to the Bearcat experience. And that's what makes people Bearcats is they have friends and they're connected. But we were obligated and felt obligated to support the CDC guidelines on social distancing and masking. Um, but student organizations, so if, you know, if the university sponsored it, we were, uh, we felt compelled to uphold that. Um, and so then we got into the disparity of students who were off campus, you know, they could act in one way, but we wouldn't support on campus, which created frustration and disappointment. Um, and we recognized that. And so, you know, the staff, especially trying to balance through that, you know, what's the right thing to do? And there were multiple rights, depending on where you were sitting and your own risk factors. And then pivoting, you know, I think in the fall of 20, we ended with Thanksgiving, you know, all those kinds of things. You just, I think a couple of things that did for us is recognize that we don't always have to do it the same way, but it also recognize there are things that are core to who we are and we can't let those go. We have to find a way to do something. Is it exactly the same? No. And I think, you know, let's just pretend now that COVID's over, you know, and, and everything's back to normal. And it you know, probably is, but the behaviors and the, the loss of connection we had during that time, how do we get that back? We know we've seen for the last 10 years, students are more comfortable on the uh, virtual world, their phone and their computer, but we know there's value in talking to your neighbor in a residence hall. How do we get back to that in-person experience when for two plus years now, there's been anxiety, you know, that's been produced and that produces anxiety. So. It's not just what did we do, it's also what are we gonna do? How are we going to get, you know, I don't know what normal will be in the fall, but I do know we need to continue to bring intramural sports. We need to bring people to the fitness center. We need to bring people to social experiences because that is valuable. Not as it valuable for their own well-being and their own satisfaction and happiness. We know that those skills help people be career ready. We know if you can talk to somebody from a different background or you can discuss a topic that is sensitive, employers are gonna love you. Um, it's very difficult to do on social media. So this out-of-class experience that we've, I think we've done an exceptional job over the last 25 or 30 years doing, how do we recapture that or reimagine that moving forward? That's really, I think, our next opportunity. So, you know, COVID, the virus is, is low risk to people, but the damage that's done into people's social networks and how to interact, that's something that I think the industry of, of higher ed or the segment of student affairs on college campuses that's our next two to five years to figure out how to do that. You know, a case in point, I think um, I've had a lot of people tell me over the years how, you know, our homecoming experience in Northwest is very strong. Certainly for a school our size, it is extremely strong. Um, but Dr. Corey Hoffman and I talked in August uh, of 21, we have to have uh, floats. We have to have the jalopies. We have to have the clowns. We have to have the variety show. All of that is handed down student to student. And if we go two years without having it, 
we will have lost all institutional knowledge of how to build a float. Um, we do not do seminars and student activities on how to build a float, pass it on to the next year. I talked to some upper class members of the Greek community and said, boy, these, these freshmen and sophomores have no idea how to make a float. And so part of that goal was to make sure we, we started this year, which was safe and we, we followed all of the guidelines, but it's not just to have homecoming. It's also to make sure that transfer of knowledge happens through our community because it doesn't happen anywhere else. And we, we run a risk of traditions dying because they didn't get handed down the way they've been handed down for the last 90 years. So those are the kinds of things that COVID bring to us. It's not all in a manual. Some of it is spoken word and it's handed down. And so that's been a fun problem to solve, but we also have to be looking around the corner to make sure we don't miss that. And then I don't know how we teach people to do floats again. That's an alarm from three to five years. That's interesting because I think employers are seeing that as well, right? When you're hiring new employees and they're not being onboarded in an in-person environment, or maybe your work is remote. It didn't used to be, but you've transitioned to that. There is also a big gap in culture, right? Just proliferating the culture through your new hires. And I think that's a really good insight um, that we've seen also on the employer side, you know, they, they're struggling a little bit and they don't realize like how much information gets passed down from a supervisor to an employee, you know, especially at that first year or two or three years of working. Like you said, first job is hardest to get. First job is also where you understand that you're gaining that information that's not necessarily something you learned in, in a class or in college or, you know, you're gaining a lot of institutional knowledge through those processes. And how much of that happens at the coffee pot at 8.05 or happens at the break room on somebody's birthday? Some of that, how much of it is a social norm that somebody says, hey, the supervisor says, you know, would really appreciate it if you did this way. They may not tell you, but it'll help you be more successful. Well, you need a little bit of, of uh, relationship before somebody's going to be vulnerable and try to give you that, that heads up. You guys probably know more than I do, but I think human resources as a function has shifted in a way that we will not go back to the way it was in February of 2020. I don't think we know what it will be like, but I think remote work is it's going to be something forever. But how do you maintain culture? And then the Chronicle of Higher Education just had a story this morning about the University of Iowa did a year-long pilot on remote work and, and flexible work. And I haven't read the full article yet, but they've had some insights about you know what's doable and what's not. And so and I think Northwest is is in a situation where our model has worked very well for a very long time. And we have to be wise enough and smart enough and brave enough to try a different model. And it will not look the same as it looked, but it won't look the same as it looked for anybody. So how do we stay out in front of that and become who we're gonna become and leverage that to be the employer of choice, the school of choice, and you know, meet students where they are, both you know, in person or online or whatever, whatever model they want or whatever mode they need. But I think this is not going to be innovative and, you know, very problem, which I think can be great. But I also think it's going to be a, a difficult transition as we figure out what, what it's going to look like two, three, and five years down. And it's quite possible it will never look the same in any five-year chunk. But I think we have to be smart and wise and, and brave enough to try some of these things to match the workforce, but also match the student demand. And we're in a largely a, a service industry. Um, it's, you know, it's not hospitality, but it is service. And we have created a, a high respect and, and appreciation for the services and support we provide students. But having people in person is a part of it. I want to go back. You talked about knowing your strengths. What 
are your strengths? What do you think are your strengths and how have you developed them? And then how, how do you leverage those strengths? Like you said, as a leader in your area, um, to then help your team, to develop your team and help them grow into this new future. I think my strengths lie in empathy, critical thinking, problem solving. I think one of the strengths I have is taking a complex issue and boiling it down. It's understandable for uh, you know many different audiences. And I think if you can, if, you know, we had an athletic director ten or so years ago named Ron Baker, and he told me once, and I've always valued this quote. He said, "A problem well defined is a problem half solved." Um, and I, I think that was a good encapsulation of one of my strengths. Of what are we really solving for here? Often a student or an employee or a community member comes with a concern, but when you boil it down, the concern really isn't the problem. The problem is, you know, 20, 30 degrees off of the concern. But once you understand what the concern or the problem is, solutions become much more apparent. So I think that critical thinking aspect of what is actually the problem, or another way to say it is, what's the goal? What are we trying to achieve? Because I think folks who work in in student success can always you know, look at whatever their goal is, retention, graduation, placement, satisfaction. But at the end of the day, why are we doing it? Uh, We don't need satisfaction to just have satisfaction. We have satisfaction because we know students who go through these experiences will be a very marketable employee and be, you know, be retained and whatever the the metric is. So um, I think that's a huge part of knowing what you're trying to achieve. And I think leveraging that is really asking that question. I think I've asked a couple hundred or a couple thousand students over the last 30 years, what's your goal? And somebody comes in with a concern, you know, sometimes the goal is I just want to share that I'm frustrated. Great, we can support that. Sometimes the goal is I want this to never, you know, to, to solve, and I want this different outcome that may or may not be possible. But always going through and making sure that folks I work with know, let's know what goal we're trying to achieve will make this much better. I think that the opposite of that is also true. Knowing what your strengths aren't is critically important. So you can surround yourself with people who have those strengths and not get upset or frustrated when they bring that strength, especially if you know, I don't have it. I can work with details, but I'm an an ideas guy. I'm a big picture guy. I'm a, how does this all fit together? And I try to surround myself with people who are really detail oriented and ask me really important questions at the right time. You know, if you do that, this is a, a likely impact. We may still do it, but it's with our eyes wide open. And I think sometimes people can be afraid if somebody challenges them, they're not agreeing. When really, that's who you want on your team is somebody to say, hey, this could be great, but let's make sure our eyes are wide open about it. So uh, knowing your strengths, but also recognizing where they're not and being comfortable. You know, one of the things I've said for 20 plus years, is I really want people, whether it's my family, my kids or students or, or colleagues, I want people to be comfortable in their own skin. Um, there's a thousand different ways to lead, but you can't lead in somebody else's way. You can only lead in the way that you can lead. Now you can grow and you can improve and you can change and you can do better. But if people can be comfortable in their own skin, uh, you know, I think that's a critical component to long-term success. I think the final thing that comes to mind, and again, another thing I just say to people if they listen, is I think communication solves about 90% of the world's problems. You know, we used to have a, a professor here, Dr. Bob Holkin, still lives in the community his license plate still says, listen, probably said that for 50 years. And I think he was the last great champion of listening as a skill set that will probably solve as many problems as talking does. So I think all of those are recognizing who you are, being comfortable with who you are, communicating about what you need and what you're hoping to get, and just listening. 
And then, you know, the, the final, final thing, we might have five final, final <laughs> But, you know, the final thing is just goes back to that. It is communication, listening, and knowing where you're going. I think that's, that's a recipe in many, many, many aspects of life. I think that's solid advice. You can't make a jigsaw puzzle if all the pieces look just alike. So you've got to have the ones that fit together, right? So skills that fit together, people that listen, people that talk. So I think that's that's all solid. I think also you want to solve every problem that exists in every department, in every area. You know, what are the three we have the capacity to solve? What are the four we can solve? For? What are the five? I mean, we can't solve a thousand problems this week. We might be able to solve three. And so I think, you know, that scale and, and take a long-term view. You know, where do you want to be in a year? And what is, you know, what, where do I want to be in May of 2023? Well, what does that mean I need to have done by July of 2022? What about November of 2022? What about March of 2023? So, you know, what's the long term? Where do I want to be in five years? And what do I need? So where do I need to be in four? Where do I need to be in two? Where do I need to be in six months? You know, what is my, my game plan to achieve whatever that goal is? And, you know, make it systematic. And, you know, it goes back to stuff most of us have heard a thousand times, you know, smart goals. Specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-bound. You know, none of this is really hard. The discipline of implementing that process is hard. Understanding it is not that hard. Uh, I heard a phrase once that the solution to a problem is simple, but not easy. I always think about personal growth. Like, I know if I want to lose 20 pounds, I know how to do it. That's simple. Implementing that is not easy. And I, and I don't think we give ourselves enough credit for simple versus easy. As we go through both work and life and student life and all those things. So, but the more we can break those down into manageable chunks, the more likely we are to, to achieve our goal. That's really great. Absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. So thank you so much, Matt. We appreciate it. We've gone a little bit over time and I know I promised you a half hour, so I won't take too much of your time, but we do appreciate it. And thank you so much for being on the show today. I can do anything to help. Let me know. All right. Well, that will do it for another episode of Behind the Bearcat and we'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.